You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Hosted jointly by the um, Overseas Development Institute and the Centre for International Economic Law, Trade and Development. Um, It's about trade in developing countries, a post-Brexit blueprint. And the first thing I should say is that I should apologise that, uh, uh, unfortunately, Lord Paul Boateng's train has been delayed, um, so he will come a bit later, so you will have to do with me as as the uh, initial chair for the first half an hour or so. My name is Dirk Tevelde, and I'm the head of the International Economic Development Group here at the ODI. This is, of course, a very important and very uh, timely uh, uh, meeting. Um, We know... um, uh, since the speech last week, but also already since a couple of months that uh, the UK might be um, leaving the EU, including going for a hard Brexit, which means uh, leaving uh, the single market and leaving the customs union. So this is now uh, a distinct uh, possibility. Well, this, of course, brings huge challenges and opportunities, and uh, these are unprecedented challenges uh, and potentially also quite big uh, opportunities. So I think this is really uh, important to be uh, uh, to be talking about uh, trade in the post-Brexit world at the moment. Um, we had the Prime Minister setting out a range of principles and objectives um, guiding the, the, the Brexit discussions last week. And of course, our interest today will be to think about the role of developing countries in this. Um, so we, uh, let me just explain a little bit about the uh, event uh, today and the format of it. What I will be doing is, um, is asking uh, questions to, um, to the panellists, and, um, uh, and they can discuss for about five to seven minutes, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll have time for questions and answers uh, after that. Um, welcome to the audience uh, here, but also online. So we have about 100 people watching online. And um, you can tweet about this event uh, using the hashtag GlobalDevBrexit and also using the handle ODIDev. Let me introduce briefly the panel. Uh, To my left is uh, uh, David Luke. He is the coordinator of the Africa Trade Policy Center uh, at the UN Economic Commission for Africa. Welcome, uh, David. Uh, To my right, uh, we have Emily Jones, who is the Associate Professor in Public Policy and the Director of the Global Economic Governance Program at the University of Oxford. Uh, uh, and then the far left is uh, Chris Shacknon. He's from, uh, uh, from the Center for International Economic Law, Trade and Development, the co-organizer of this event, and he's an associate director there. And uh, we'll start today um, with uh, Max mendes Para, who is a senior research fellow here uh, uh, at OSCE Development Institute. He leads the trade work, and he also leads the, um, the work on, uh, uh, on, on Brexit. Um, Max has also been a uh, uh, negotiator uh, for the Argentinian uh, government uh, uh, a decade ago, so he's got a lot of uh, experience uh, on, on, on trade policy. Um, so let's think a little bit about um, the, the core question here about uh, sort of the, the UK trade policy uh, post-Brexit. Uh, what do you think, uh, Max, should be the, sort of the guiding principles uh, for, for UK trade policy post-Brexit, and what are the constraints that the UK is facing uh, in, in, in negotiating a new UK trade policy? 
Yeah, uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, yes, basically, I mean, it's, it's this idea of start defining what is the principles, what is the taste that that trade policy will have, objectives, and also what are basically the constraints in defining that policy. I mean, those that understand a bit of mathematics, I like to say the set of feasible, feasible solutions, but we all those solutions that will meet a series of constraints. And if you started with the uh, 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 constraints, uh, uh, there are a few that are quite clear. Uh, some already have been discussed a lot, that is basically what is the relationship with the EU. Whatever is the relationship of the UK after Brexit, with the EU will basically define what can do the UK in terms of trade policy. Uh, this particular constraint, for example, seems to have been lifted last week by, by the government. It has said, well, basically, we're willing to, uh, uh, in a way, pay that price of lifting that constraint in the, in the capability of doing certain type of policies. But there are other type of constraints. Uh, one may think that what the other constraint is what is the, the commitments that the UK has or not, depending how you interpret uh, uh, what will be the situation of the... UK, the WTO after uh, Brexit, the WTO commitment. So basically that will set, okay, a series of uh, 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 things that the UK can do, basically a limit of what they can do. And the other thing is basically is that what I see as a constraint, not in, in terms of what the UK can do, is the existing press preferences for developing countries. So basically that will limit what the UK can do in terms of the, its trade policy. I think that this is important to, to highlight that this sort of set of feasible solutions is not constant. It changes over time. I mean, currently in the short run, we may think that the preferences present a, a constraint of basically what the UK can or, or, or can do. But in the long run, that may change. And commitments of the WTO can change on the long run. Uh, one thing that we know that is clear is that, as I said, is that the, 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 the government has uh, uh, basically has said that it's willing to lift the constraint of the EU relationship. And that implies that it has a new, a different set of, of, of opportunities or, or, or solutions. This implies that it will be able to define a, 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 an alternative or, or, a, or an autonomous uh, uh, trade policy in terms of tariff outside the uh, uh, Customs Union, it would be able to define its uh, new more federal nation tariff. Uh, it will be able to define new preferences for the uh, developing countries and other things associated with the Customs Union. Outside the single market, the same. It would change also what the UK can do in terms of policy. But then it also comes in terms of the principles of basically, okay, uh, the constraints define what can be done the principles sort of define what the UK wish to do. Basically says, I mean, the flavor of that policy. Uh, some of these principles uh, uh, are general principles in terms of policy making. One may think one principle could be uh, uh, transparency. One may wish that that policy, not only the trade policy, but also it's a transparent policy that is open and clear to every partner uh, uh, with the UK trade with, as well as the uh, uh, people, the traders in the UK. Uh, 
other uh, uh, principles is uh, uh, that was outlined by the prime minister is the idea of predictability of certainty. You want to have a policy that is certain for UK exporters, uh, but also not mentioned by the prime minister in the speech, for developing countries. One may wish to also that it's a predictable policy, that whatever is defined in terms of, of tariff, in terms of uh, uh, preference, etc., is predictable. Developing countries know what would be the level of access that they will have in uh, five years, for example. Uh, there are other principles uh, that one may uh, uh, consider. I think that is, there is one important that, that I would say that is, uh, the policy must be realistic in the sense that you need to understand that the, the policy is not defined independently by the UK. I mean, there is interacts a lot of uh, uh, other actors in this defining of policy, uh, where developing countries are also, you would say, have its word. I mean, they may say, sorry, I am not interested in this particular free trade agreement that you are suggesting and working out. I mean, there is a lot of discussion nowadays. We were discussing on what is happening with the EAC in, in the next month, actually, that uh, 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 Kenya is losing the, 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 the preference access. So, Kenya is, would be able to say, well, I want to continue having this access or not. Well, I think that this principle needs to be included in the policy making of the UK. And I think that the principle that is, uh, 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 and I think that is very important for developing countries that hasn't been uh, uh, spell out in any way in the in the prime minister's uh, speech is the idea of do not harm. This idea that uh, whatever is the new uh, policy of the of the UK government try to aim to generate the least re uh, disruption for, uh, 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 in particular for uh, developing countries. I think that this is a, a principle that. Uh, uh, that will define, together with the constraints, it will define a series of features, a series of elements that that trade policy will have. So all these principles together and the constraints will define the, the details of, of the trade policy. What will be the instruments? What will be the elements of that trade policy? Mm -hmm. I mean, Max, you did this, uh, this briefing uh, uh, just before Christmas. Yeah. In a post-Christmas world. Uh, mm -hmm. What would you uh, suggest are uh, sort of win-win UK trade policy options uh, that are sort of helpful for both uh, the UK and developing countries? Can you be a bit more specific on yeah. specific policy options? Yes, well, I think that in, in, in these elements that need to be defined, I think that it would be key where the UK defines a group of developing countries to work with. Basically, be clear that this is the group of developing countries. The definition of the group will have a lot of implications, and it is not a, a, an easy exercise of defining who is going to be included or not in this group. One may think clearly LDCs could be a group, but this shouldn't be limited to that, so it would be a LDC plus group. Uh, the definition, as I said, I mean, it has a lot of legal implications, WTO implications of which include in that group or not, in terms particularly at the time of, of granting preferences. Uh, I think that the other issue is, is another element, another possibility is 
that the UK will have to do is the definition of its, now that it's out of the customs union, the definition of its most favorable nation tariff, the tariff that applies to all WTO members. And that will have important implications because it defines the preference margins that the UK will offer to developing countries. So uh, uh, the lower, let's say, that is this MFN tariff in the short run, the, low, the shorter the lower will be those preference margins. So I think that ideal, it would be good if the UK aims to uh, uh, eliminate some of the tariff peaks that is already in the, in the, in the, in the, in the EU schedule, basically. Then the, the definition of the preferences. What I would say that I would aim to have something very simple very a preferential regime, uh, full preferences to all developing countries, basically the target group that, that, that I mentioned, uh, uh, with, of course, I mean, uh, 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 rule of origin that allows the, the accumulation of different origins in, in those rules. So basically it's to having a, a, a those preferences that, in addition, can be used to create a sort of value change in the in the, with developing countries. I think that the free trade agreements is an option that is, 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 needs to be considered. I think that it needs to understand one thing, that it shouldn't expect full reciprocity of, of those free trade agreements with developing countries. Uh, and in addition, I think that it's very important that any free trade agreement that the UK negotiate with uh, third countries either develop or large emerging countries, let's say China, India, Brazil, uh, you need to understand clearly what could be the implication for some developing countries. And I think it would be good to have the opportunity to include in these agreements some sort of development provisions. I mean, what can be done to these agreements to encourage the, uh, the use, for example, of, input, of inputs in, the, uh, uh, in, in these agreements? So basically, how you define the rules of origin of these agreements to actually be compatible and be able to use. Uh, uh, uh. Mm -hmm. Finally, a thing that I think was missing in, in, in last week's speech is, I think the, the, the Prime Minister said that the UK is willing to cooperate in terms with the EU in terms of security and defense. Nothing was said in terms of development. So I think that it would have been good. I mean, that breaking the EU doesn't mean that the UK cannot cooperate with the EU in development, and particularly when we're thinking about in trade, for example, in how you can coordinate, now that you're leaving the EU, the actions in terms of faithful trade, for example. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Max. That's very helpful. You mentioned something about free trade agreements and reciprocity, and I think that's something we probably we might come back to. That's something that Theresa May mentioned last week. Uh, we move to Emily. Emily, of course, you're an expert also in, uh, in, in, in trade negotiations. Uh, what do you think is a sort of a best case scenario for, for developing countries? And negotiation-wise, how can they best take advantage of the, sort of the new negotiations with the UK? Great. Thank you very much, and good morning, everybody. Um, so I wanted to do a couple of things. One, just to start by saying we need to recognize how big or not the UK is on the global market um, for trade with developing countries. And um, the headline figures I saw was that 
Um, roughly 2% of developing country exports have come to the UK over the last five years, um, roughly 4% of least developed countries. So on aggregate, we're not the world's biggest player when it comes to trade and development. That said, it is important to recognize that we are important for specific countries and specific products, okay? Um, so for example, if you're producing bananas in the Windward Islands in the Caribbean, we're your main export market. Um, similarly, Bangladesh, garments, we're really important. Kenya, 80% of Kenya's tea comes here. It really matters for very specific products and very specific countries. Um, so given that, I want to paint a picture of the glass half empty, and then I'm going to paint a picture of the glass perhaps half full in the more optimistic scenario. Why might we be worried about Brexit? I'm going to give you five reasons why I think there is a risk to developing country trade um, from Brexit. One, EU preferences. So for anyone who's followed, the EU has pretty generous scheme of preferences for developing countries, particularly for the least developed countries, so the everything but arms scheme. That means that Bangladeshi garments come into our market duty-free, quota-free, compared to other countries that um, face a tariff of up to 10%. Okay, so those cease to apply once we've Brexited um, in the way that Theresa May has now outlined. Other um, cause of disruption, EU, as we all know, has more than 30 free trade agreements, many of them with developing countries. They also cease to apply to UK trade once we've Brexited. Um, so those countries too would face uh, MFN tariffs to, to uh, enter the EU. So if you look at St Lucia's bananas that come in duty-free, quota-free, at the moment under the Caribbean free trade agreement with Europe, they would f that's a, a much better margin of preference than many Latin American countries that pay 100 plus euros per tonne. Okay, so that, that they would cease to have that the day we've Brexited if, and I'll come back to it, we haven't taken some actions. Divergent product standards. So the UK wants to go its own way on product standards. What does that mean? If you're in Ghana and you export mangoes, you have to comply with the sanitary and phytosanitary rules that the EU puts down. Well, on, for example, the amount of pesticides you can have on your mangoes. As soon as we put a different set of regulations down, the small mango exporter in Ghana has got two sets of preferences or two sets of standards they then need to comply with. So that's another risk. Fourth risk, uh, EU-UK supply chains. Um, so the EU, as we know, we're very much integrated into trade across the Eurozone at the moment, um, across Europe generally. For instance, perhaps there might be chocolate that's manufactured using cocoa beans from West Africa, manufactured in Germany, exported to the UK. When we now have our negotiations with Europe, what's the tariff going to be on that chocolate coming from Germany? That's going to have repercussions for developing countries. There's all the different ways in which a new UK EU settlement is going to affect those kind of supply chains. Um, Max already mentioned, if we're out of the customs union, we get to set our own tariffs. Well, if we liberalise, as many would want us to do, um, fair enough. But then, for example, on sugar, at the moment, Malawi has a much better access to the European market and the UK market on sugar than Brazil. So if we liberalise, well, Brazilian sugar then might displace Malawian sugar. So there's important trade-offs be between developing countries um, from any post-Brexit uh, trade policy. We need to consider that. So one might say, well, maybe developing countries, they're so small, they might be at the back of the queue. We've heard a lot about being at the back of the queue. Um, think if you're Malawi, we might be at the back of the UK's queue. UK government has got a lot on its mind. Why would they be worrying about trying to figure out, I don't know, tariffs for uh, Vanuatu? Um, there's a reduced political appetite for the development agenda. We've seen a lot of sort of pushback. Why are we giving 0.7 when all our you know, um, services are being cut. So maybe there's not political appetite to support developing countries. So maybe the depressing worst case scenario, small developing countries are going to be left hanging. 
Now, I don't think that's likely, and I'll tell you why. Um, first, I think, uh, on, the, on the positive side, the UK government now needs to show that Brexit's working. It doesn't want to have... It needs trade deals. Um, it wants to be seen to be sort of pushing the UK's agenda globally and having a global presence. And actually, it, if it did disrupt trade with developing countries, um, that sort of flies in the face of that, uh, um, that agenda. So I think it's, it's going to be wanting to do trade deals. And that's pretty tough, actually, as we've seen. Um, India didn't want to do one. Um, so in, a, in some respects, having the sort of African countries, the smaller countries, are in sort of paradoxically in quite a good position at the moment to influence the UK agenda because um, the UK government needs to, to show that it's making progress. Um, we have a lot of people in the Department for International Development who care deeply about trade. We've got a good reputation in trade. So I think the politics stacks up actually for us to do um, some good in trade. Um, and I think the other point is that we're less protectionist than many EU countries because our products don't compete directly um, with products that come from developing countries in many cases. So in sectors like horticulture, like fish, like sugar, like bananas, we could be less protectionist than um, other UK countries. Sugar, Sheila's questioning that. We could come back to that in the discussion. So best case scenario, I'm going to give you quick six headlines and I'm happy to elaborate um, further during the Q&A. First, um, I think we will bring in, under the Great Repeal Act, our existing EU FTAs. The free trade agreements we already have, we're likely to bring in, we're not likely to see a huge amount of trade disruption. And I think in that sense, there's, a, there's an opportunity perhaps for developing countries to renegotiate specific clauses. So if you're in the Caribbean, chances are the EU CARA Forum deal will come into the UK um, books. The question is, are there clauses in there you'd rather see changed um, if you're in the Caribbean countries when the UK brings them in? Um, preferences, the UK, I think, will create or its own scheme of preferences. I don't think it's going to gonna want to be seen as just copying that of the EU. Um, and the EU's preferences are generous, but also they've got some problems. So there's a really big opportunity here for the UK to create a good preference scheme for developing countries. Um, again, we'd need to discuss that, what that would look like, but we need to think about country coverage. All Africa, for example. We've had very contentious trade deals with Africa, the EPAs. We could do a preferential deal for the whole of Africa. Okay, but other developing countries would lose out from that, so we'd need to discuss it. Rules of origin. We've had, EU has got very complicated rules of origin on its preferences. Um, for example, on fish, we could um, improve them. Um, product graduation, at the moment under the EU's preferences scheme, the moment you become competitive in an export, um, then it's, you're graduated off the preferential scheme. So we could be much more generous in our preferences. Third point, um, aid for trade. Here I think we could be more generous again on our aid for trade package and make sure the UK government puts a political commitment to supporting countries on aid for trade um, and trade adjustment. Fourth point, and it's four of six, when we do a new free trade agreement, and I'm Please see Max suggested this as well, a development audit of them, um, so to make sure that they are all support development, and that means the developing the FTA that we might do with India, or like you said, with the US. So if we're now going to run after Trump and do a trade deal, that's, pretty, that's a huge part of global trade, right? Um, UK, US, so that's, it's important to think what the, the knock-on, the spillover effects are for developing countries from that. Um, fifth point, EU-UK trade, as we negotiate with Europe, thinking about those supply lines that affect developing countries. Um, what, is it, what happens if we go our own way on product standards and things like that? Um, and last point relates to product standards is that, well, the UK is going to come up with our own product standards post-Brexit. Um, perhaps developing countries should have a voice in the room, right? So if they say we're changing our agricultural standards 
I don't know, on whatever um, product, that they actually have a, a, a channel through which they can raise concerns and flag them early on. Um, so to conclude quickly, I think Brexit is a, it does pose risks, but I think at the moment it also poses a big opportunity to us to show that we are sort of we do care um, about development. We've got a big track record in that, and we can follow through on that in our trade policy. Um, I think the UK government would be willing and interested to, to pursue that. I think from us, um, firstly, from developing countries, they need a very clear agenda, and I'm looking forward to hearing David's comments on what developing countries would want um, from the deal. And I think then those of us working in the development community in the UK can provide two things. One, help marshal the evidence. Um, and two, the political commitment, right? Because I think, actually, we didn't see it in Theresa May's speech last week. We should have done. So making sure that development stays on the agenda and creating the political space so that then when we've got the evidence, we know what developing countries would like to see, there's the sort of channel then um, to push it onto, onto the UK government's agenda. Um, I'm glad uh, Lord Boateng's joined us. I think Parliament as well, keeping it up there in Parliament um, and making sure that parliamentary questions and other things reflect the development agenda. So that, again, we just keep it, we keep it to the top of, of, the, of the queue um, when it comes to UK policy. Thank you, Emily. That's, that's very helpful. And let me also welcome uh, Lord Paul Boateng to uh, today's uh, discussion. Um, with your permission, we just carry on uh, with, with introductions, and then after the, um, the introductions have been, been had, then maybe perhaps you could also say a few words, and if you, if you like, we can t you can take over, but um, we'll, we'll see when it comes to that. Um, I think we've, we've had some discussions on the economics of uh, the trade post-Brexit. We should now also think about the legal aspects. Um, and um, sort of Chris Canyon, you, I mean, you've been working on sort of the legal aspects. What are sort of the, the, the legal challenges that the UK is going to face uh, in, in these trade negotiations, and particularly also in the negotiation with the, the WTO, and how might, might that affect uh, developing countries? Um, well, to begin with, thank you very much, and uh, good morning, everyone. I guess the, the important thing to look at here is to very quickly look at the UK's WTO status. Now, the UK is part of the WTO both on its own and as part of the EU. So when leaving the EU, that does not mean that they have to reapply for WTO status. Um, of course, so WTO membership uh, consists of both rights to export to other countries and obligations to limit restrictions on imports. Um, there are rights and obligations that apply to all WTO members, but each uh, member has its own schedule, uh, schedule of concessions. And these schedules are tariff concessions and other commitments in trade negotiations, which include quotas on imported goods. This is where things get a little bit sticky. Right now, the EU, all EU members share a single schedule. Um, and when they split, this is going to mean negotiations on how to split that schedule. Uh, for example, uh, this is especially relevant to quotas. Um, for example, Uruguay has an operating quota concession of 5,800 tons of sheep and goat meat to the EU. There are also 15 other countries that have concessions on sheep and goat meat. So the UK, the EU, and all 16 countries are going to have to sit down for this one concession to negotiate how much goes to the EU, how much goes to the UK. This is further complicated by the fact that uh, as the EU has grown, so have the concessions. But the certification of the concessions have not actually, uh, has not actually occurred because it is such a complicated process. 
So what's officially happening on paper is actually lower than de facto what's happening on the ground since EU expansion. So all of this is going to have to get sort of settled down. Um, now, right now, another issue beyond this, too, is the, the unanimous nature of the WTO. 164 members. And, of course, they're not going to be all relevant to all areas, but they will be relevant to some areas. Um, this kind of becomes another issue with when these concessions are being negotiated, it's the people who are affected or the, the, the members that are affected, but it could also be new members coming in who feel that they should be getting part of it, or other countries that were not included before that could be getting new concessions. Um, overall, it's, well, we had mentioned the anything but arms, or I believe that had come up, with the 49 LDCs recognized by the WTO. They get quota-free, duty-free access to the European Union. It's pretty easy to roll this over. Nobody disagrees about this sort of access. So that's, that's one area that could be relatively easy and, and work out well for developing countries. However, for countries that don't fall into this, that have the high enough, uh, high enough uh, income overall to not qualify as an LDC, but do still have massive gaps in wealth, uh, would not be benefited by this. Um, overall, though, because of this consensus nature of the WTO, it is in the UK's interest to have the support of the LDCs and of developing countries in general. So, obviously, rolling over anything but arms is one way to do it. Um, and also helping to ensure, uh, let's say, ensuring support by uh, better trade deals for developing countries. Um, and working with DFID, I think that this is one thing that the government should hopefully be doing, is working with DFID to identify needs both in the UK and in developing countries to create the most effective deals. Um, DFID is full of very intelligent, very hardworking, very experienced people that can bring a lot to these uh, negotiations. Um, at the end of the day, though, it's largely just going to be seeing what kind of interim agreement comes out post-Brexit. Yeah. What sort of interim agreement could be designed, do you think, so uh, that, that can sort of avoid trade disruption for developing countries? Uh, again, this is, this is tricky. Um, it's, and I, I am loath to say this, but it will be very, very, very difficult to avoid all trade disruption. Um, of course, these are, are such comprehensive agreements that it will be difficult to get absolutely no disruption. However, there are several different options for minimizing it. Um, the first option, uh, the quickest and the easiest, is to just, for the time being, roll over what's going on with the EU. Um, this provides minimum disruption, obviously, with, with some agreements, especially the, uh, the uh, EPAs and FTAs. Those are a little bit trickier. Um, but on the large part, this would keep continuity. However, of course, with the political climate, it is difficult to, well, it could be politically difficult to keep something from the EU. Um, similarly, they could just roll over uh, anything but arms and try to keep that going at the very minimum, then that would help LDCs uh, keep some continuity. Um, however, if they tried to go too far, 
um, especially with developing countries that aren't LDCs, it could be looking at giving discriminating treatment under the WTO, uh, which is one of the issues with just rolling over the free trade agreements that are already in place because, yeah, somebody could step up and say, if, um, say, Mexico is getting free trade, uh, got special treatment under one of these, or actually, no, let's say uh, Kenya, um, then it could create issues. Um, what, what, what does roll over mean? Is it just a signature? Roll over, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, just take it one again. Signature, yeah, one signature, one signature, yeah, just, we're done. Yeah, 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 that's what I mean, like just rolling over, like just keeping it mm -hmm. totally. Um, let's say beyond that, there is the possibility for the, EU, uh, for the UK to sign on to some of the free trade agreements that are meant to be multi-party. Um, the SADC-EU free trade agreement is meant to be expandable. Of course, when this was being written, it was more to expand on the side of African countries, but the UK could jump into that. Again, the issue being, though, that if the UK jumped into that, they'd be locking themselves into EU policy, which is not preferable. Um, and, of course, there's the idea of just creating such a liberalized system of uh, a generalized system of preferences with essentially uh, minimum tariffs uh, or, or preferences that are so positive um, that it would make preferences for developing countries unnecessary. Of course, we, we discussed this before, where one of the issues comes down to developing countries losing their advantage over the long term. In the short term, it would be good. In the long term, it would probably damage their position, them being at the back of the queue. Uh, and then finally, um, the UK can try to create its own more nuanced uh, GSP. However, again, this is a very time-consuming and difficult process. And it's very much in the eye of the beholder what could come out of this. I mean, there's, there's a lot of business interests. There's a lot of political interests that will come into play here. Uh, it, come, it could come out with something that's very, very positive for developing countries, or it could come out with something that would be less positive. Um, overall, at the end of the day, though, uh, the UK has a lot of great resources and a lot of experience that can come into this. Um, regardless of what is chosen, I, I do believe that they can find something solid to, uh, to minimize trade disruption going forward. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. It sounds very easy, doesn't it? Uh, this rollover sig one signature, the Great Repeal Act, <laughs> developing country interests are protected. Uh, and so I wonder why Theresa May didn't actually mention that last week in one of her <laughs> objectives. But uh, let's discuss that later. Uh, let's now move to David, um, uh, David Luke. Um, so you're head of the Trade Policy Center uh, uh, at the UN in the uh, uh, Economic Commission for Africa and others. Um, how are developing countries responding to this, African countries in particular? What, what are their opportunities? Yeah. Thank you, Dirk, and uh, good morning uh, to everyone. Um, uh, building on what's already been said, uh, one of the biggest concerns, of course, of African countries is the current um, uh, uncertainty, the lack of clarity as to where um, and what direction things, things may go, um, and the risks that, that are involved. Um, I think some excellent ex examples have been given already of um, exactly what uh, I'm, I'm talking about here. Uh, but um, if you take, for example, uh, the um, very successful floriculture uh, sector that has been built up in, in Kenya and where um, uh, the UK is the uh, second biggest export uh, market, um, there is that risk now um, that uh, those gains and, um, and behind those gains, of course, uh, the um, enormous uh, um, uh, uh, 
the, the, the enormous uh, uh, stakeholder uh, buy-in and, and so on that is, is, is behind that, including um, the fact that uh, you have a, a number of women um, involved in, uh, in, in that sector and so on. So uh, that's one of the uh, key issues that um, you find African policymakers talking about. I think it was last week in Davos that uh, the um, South African uh, uh, finance minister was quoted as saying that uh, whatever happens, he hopes it could happen very quickly uh, so that um, there could be some certainty as to where things are, are going. So um, that's, uh, I, I would say, is the first issue that... Um, we find African policymakers uh, talking about the, um, the the uncertainty and, and the current lack of clarity. Um, second issue, of course, is uh, which is related is um, uh, the uh, uh, possibility that uh, we could now face uh, a situation of having to deal with uh, divergent uh, standards, which um, various colleagues uh, here have also uh, talked about. Uh, again, uh, with uh, very little capacities, uh, many African countries have uh, built up the uh, uh, the, uh, the standard standards compliance regimes uh, to be able to um, export uh, into the EU and uh, other developed uh, uh, markets. And uh, uh, now the possibility that they may be facing new uh, hurdles and need to build new capacities uh, is obviously uh, a challenge um, for, for for many countries. Um, if, uh, for for example, uh, you take um, a country like Sierra Leone, uh, which is very much interested uh, in exporting uh, fish and crustaceans uh, to the uh, to the EU, um, what it has found in talking to Sierra Leonean officials, uh, what they've said is that uh, uh, they seem to be facing uh, a moving target. That as they try to. Uh, meet a certain bar, um, that seems to change and, and so on. So on top of that complexity already dealing with the EU, the question is uh, would British common sense uh, be brought uh, where where we do see it, uh, not been seen uh, much of it lately, but um, it does, it's, it's, it's out there. But um, would you see that uh, coming in, into play um, as uh, standard regimes uh, are, are being fixed? Uh, some of the ideas that have been uh, already talked about, including perhaps giving uh, developing country partners a seat at the table in the discussion of standards uh, would obviously uh, help and, and go a long way. A third area is um, what would become of, Brexit, of, uh, of the EPAs um, on, the, on the Brexit. And uh, here, again, the last 13 years, uh, many African countries have expended uh, much energy, much capacity in trying to negotiate uh, uh, these EPAs um, and an understanding that they were negotiating with 28. And now if there are 27, what are the implications, the legal uh, issues there, uh, countries like Tanzania have already pointed out that um, uh, the EPAs uh, need to be looked at because uh, it's no longer the situation uh, that they started out with and, and, and so on. Um, but then also it's true to say that, um, uh, as some colleagues on this panel have already said, that there could be some uh, new opportunities uh, if the uh, EPAs are to be reopened um, alongside uh, Brexit, both for the UK and, and for the EU, uh, to look at uh, again at some of the uh, issues that um, some of the African countries have not been uh, comfortable with, the extent of reciprocity, the time frame for uh, implementation, uh, to name uh, two of these uh, issues and, and so on. 
Um, but overall, I would say that uh, African policymakers understand the risks, but they do actually see some uh, opportunities. That there are opportunities um, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, uh, they could uh, build upon, um, you know, as the situation unfolds. Yeah. Now I know you're passionate about regional integration in in Africa. Um, now the UK is moving away, uh, seems to be moving away from regional integration, um, and in Africa there is a move towards regional integration. Um, how is that going to affect uh, the discussions and the negotiations between the UK and the uh, yeah. um, Africa region? Sure. Uh, for the Africa region, um, uh, regional integration really is a, is a huge uh, opportunity. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's true that um, historically, for any nation, uh, you trade with your neighbors. Um, and uh, that trade uh, in Africa is, is very promising, although it's been... Uh, small, um, but nonetheless very promising. Uh, I do in fact have one uh, slide um, with uh, showing some data that we have worked on at the uh, at the centre. Or oh, there it is. Um, uh, that shows that uh, basically inter-African trade is uh, far more diversified than Africa's trade with the uh, with the rest of the world. Um, although what uh, what we are looking at here is um, a small slice of that trade, only about 17% or so of Africa's trade, uh, given that the extractive, uh, uh, the extractives dominate um, African's trade. But if you look at that small slice, uh, basically what this uh, slide tells you, uh, this data is um, intra-African trade is very promising. So, uh, um, so the move towards regional integration, especially focusing on liberalizing trade. Um, uh, between the African countries uh, does make sense. Average tariffs for um, African countries uh, uh, on intra-Africa trade is about 8%. Average tariffs for Africa's exports to the rest of the world is about 2%. Uh, and then on top of that, there are all sorts of gains um, if you tackle non-tariff uh, uh, issues, um, customs, uh, greater customs eff efficiency, uh, various trade facilitation issues, and, and, and so on. So, um, yes, uh, there's this uh, paradox that um, uh, regional integration seems to have come under fire, not only uh, in, in Europe. Uh, I know the Canadians are also worried about NAFTA, not just the Mexicans and, and so on. But, no, but really, for Africa, it does, it does make sense, just given the greater dynamism that we find, um, uh, uh, that we see in, in, in the African trade. I'll just make one last point on this. I think the African demographics... Um, also mean that uh, Africa really needs to grow the trade between African countries. Uh, the African population now is about 1 billion. Uh, by 2050, which is not a long time, not a long time away, it's about 33 years away, um, the African population would be projected to be about 2 billion. This would be more than India and China combined because their populations are expected to fall. Uh, during this period. So you do have um, business consultancy groups like uh, McKinsey and so on, um, looking at the implications of all of this, um, uh, not only for um, uh, African trade, but uh, also the opportunities that the African market is likely to, uh, uh, to offer if um, these sorts of policy reforms, and by the way, these trade reforms uh, imply deep structural reforms, which many African uh, countries require at this point in time. Uh, so, you know, hopefully that should um, uh, help to deal with this uh, demographic uh, time bomb or, or dividend, uh, as in the case maybe that the African countries are facing. Good. Well, David, thank you very much indeed. Um, so you, you mentioned a bit about um, the, the content of free trade 
uh, agreement. Um, and um, I, th I think that's also an area where Lord Boateng is, is quite interested in. And you're also a champion of, of African trade, uh, which is by a sort of a report that you, uh, you co-authored uh, recently, a parliamentary report by the APPG on trading out of poverty. Um, wh what is your view on sort of trade developing countries in a post-Brexit world? Where are the opportunities here? Yeah. My apologies, uh, Chair, for having arrived late. We hear a lot about uh, Africa's uh, infrastructure uh, deficit. <laughs> uh, but I do have to tell you, uh, I've spent uh, the weekend in the southern part of England, and we have our own infrastructure deficit <laughs> there. <laughs> and I feel rather the victim of it. Uh, but it's good uh, to be uh, uh, with you uh, all. And, uh, let me just, if I may, uh, it won't surprise you, but let me just look at the politics uh, 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 of this. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting, uh, the point that, uh, that you make uh, uh, about uh, the EPAs, uh, because, of course, the fact of the matter is that uh, Africa has had no stouter or firmer uh, a champion in relation to the EPAs, frankly, uh, than uh, the UK. Uh, and the absence of the UK going forward uh, from uh, that uh, discussion is one that obviously has serious uh, implications uh, for uh, uh, Africa. I spend a third of my time uh, on uh, the continent, not least as chair uh, of the Africa Enterprise uh, Challenge Fund based out of uh, Nairobi. Uh, and certainly, uh, I find real concerns on uh, the continent uh, uh, about uh, Brexit that are directly related to the loss of a voice within the councils of Europe for Africa that the UK has traditionally provided and has provided actually over many years and through many, uh, many governments. So that's uh, just a fact and uh, both the EU and Africa will need to uh, address uh, that. But going forward, I don't see politically any diminution in uh, the UK's commitment to Africa. Uh, it's a bipartisan commitment that has withstood uh, uh, the, the uh, tests uh, of uh, various changes in government uh, and uh, elections. It's part and parcel of the commitment to 0.7% uh, of uh, our uh, GDP on, on ODA which is a commitment uh, that Theresa May has shown very clearly she intends to stick to, uh, whatever the strictures uh, of the Daily Mirror, uh, of, the, of the Daily Mail and uh, 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 the Sun and uh, the Express and various others, uh, to its credit, this Conservative government has stood by that 0.7%. Uh, I don't see any sign either, and I don't think we should read too much into... Um, the fact that Theresa May has not referred specifically uh, to uh, this uh, issue, because the fact of the matter is that Preeti Patel has, uh, on her visit to, to Kenya, Greg Hans, the Minister uh, of State in the Department of International Trade, has made very clear his uh, commitment to uh, Africa in the course uh, of this uh, uh, process. So, yes, uh, we are likely to have, in my view, uh, a hard uh, uh, Brexit, but that ne doesn't necessarily mean a hard landing so far as Africa is concerned. And I think what we have to do going, uh, going forward uh, in our different roles, whether it is political, uh, technical, uh, diplomatic in the uh, development uh, space, uh, is to argue the case uh, for Africa, uh, to seek to assist in terms uh, of uh, the uh, technical solutions 
to a number of the issues that arise and make what is undoubtedly a, uh, a policy uh, challenge into a real opportunity uh, for Africa and its development. And I do believe, actually, that it is a real uh, opportunity uh, because uh, the reality is, and uh, you know, let's uh, confront it, uh, the uh, reality is that actually... If you take uh, our main uh, partners uh, on uh, the trade uh, front, uh, Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, Côte d'Ivoire, uh, South Africa, uh, South Africa alone, actually, uh, and that, I can tell you, having been part of the negotiation after a protracted battle, South Africa alone has found in Europe uh, what it wants so far as development is concerned in the EPAs. Uh, and that is something that is clearly benefiting South Africa, but isn't actually necessarily benefiting its neighbours. <laughs> that is the nature <laughs> of, uh, 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 of the beast. So for uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Côte d'Ivoire, uh, uh, Kenya, there's a, there's a big opportunity here. Uh, and uh, for the uh, least uh, uh, developed uh, of, uh, the, uh, of the economies, uh, an, an opportunity too. And the critical thing, it seems to me, is to have the conversation now uh, and, 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 and not to uh, delay the conversation that needs to take place uh, between the, uh, the, the AU, uh, sovereign African nations, uh, ourselves uh, in uh, the UK, our respective uh, uh, parliaments, and the development uh, communities uh, in both uh, the, the UK uh, and, uh, and, and Africa, civil society, uh, academia, uh, the trades unions, uh, and also the uh, confederations of, uh, of business, the chambers of commerce, and the like. Those are very important conversations. And we need to be doing everything we can to encourage them now, uh, and and not just not to hang about. Because, I mean, let's be let's be frank. When you look at the list uh, of uh, challenges uh, and the scale of the challenges, uh, the danger for Africa is that we will actually come pretty far down, uh, and that's why Africa needs. Uh, advocates now. Mm -hmm. uh, we also need uh, to uh, recognize, don't we, that some of the uh, bigger economies who are going to be further up there, like take Brazil, have interests actually which don't uh, necessarily uh, coincide with those of Africa in terms of their trading relationships uh, with, with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we have to make sure uh, that Africa's interests uh, uh, aren't aren't uh, in the interim uh, adversely affected by decisions that are made in relation to some of our, of, of our bigger trading partners. But that too actually also represents uh, an, an opportunity. I'm looking very carefully, uh, and will be looking, and I suggest we all do, uh, over uh, the coming days and weeks uh, as to who uh, Trump and his Secretary of State pick uh, as the Undersecretary for Africa. That, I think, is going to be a very, very important uh, uh, decision. Trump has shown no great uh, interest uh, in Africa uh, in, in, in the past. Uh, however, a number of his uh, picks 
both in terms of uh, the national security uh, uh, sector and uh, the, Secret the Secretary of State do actually have uh, experience uh, of, uh, of Africa. Uh, and I don't think we should therefore underestimate the importance of ensuring uh, that we have a progressive axis around Africa between the US and the UK. And I don't think that's, that's fanciful, because certainly the dispensation that we want going forward uh, in terms of the UK and Africa is one that will replicate uh, AGOA in a number of respects, which actually has proved to be very positive and very progressive. Uh, uh, for Africa, yeah. and I don't think it's unrealistic uh, to uh, to uh, to see uh, Africa uh, as being a, a subject where uh, the UK and the US uh, can make can make common common cause, and I think there are real benefits uh, for uh, uh, for Africa there. So yes, there is hazard, there is there is risk, uh, but but I think on balance. Uh, the opportunities actually outweigh uh, uh, the risks, and we need to be ensuring that we get uh, our ducks, ducks in a row in order uh, to maximize those. And I just end, end on this, and it's, it's for me a vital, a vital issue, uh, and that is the importance of capacity building uh, within Africa itself. Uh, and capacity, capacity building in terms of African governments, capacity building in terms uh, of uh, African uh, uh, civil society. So Africa has a real voice because at the end of the day, uh, you know, the future of, uh, of, of Africa uh, must be something that is determined uh, by Africa itself and by African interests. And the most persuasive and powerful voices uh, need to come from within Africa addressing these these issues, and I think there's a there's an there is a, a, an appetite. We were both together at Africa Trade Week uh, uh, late uh, late late last year. There is an there's an appetite as Africa takes forward its integration process, which, by the way, is economic integration rather than political integration. Uh, the UK is not against economic integration. What, the UK, what sticks in the craw of many of our fellow citizens is the political project that the EU represents. And I can assure you that also sticks in the craw of many Africans who do not want, actually, their political future uh, to, to be determined by their, some of their bigger African neighbours. Uh, I took part in uh, an event in uh, Angola uh, uh, last year, uh, a think tank, uh, where they were addressing the issues of regional uh, uh, integration. What is Angola's fear? You, we all know what Angola's fear is. It is being dominated by its big brother down south, and they're not prepared to have it. Uh, and similarly, you know, that's just part and parcel uh, uh, of the world in which we live. The lesson uh, of Brexit uh, for, for Africa uh, is keep your eyes on the, on the economy, uh, on, uh, uh, on, on, on issues where you can integrate without the political loss of sovereignty that's likely to prove unacceptable to your citizens. And don't rush out ahead of your citizens on a project which they haven't endorsed. And make sure that your institutions are more democratic than the European Commission is. Uh, you know, th those, those are the interesting lessons, I think, that Africa is drawing uh, from, from, from our agonizings and our, our turbulences uh, at this time. So it's an interesting time, a time uh, of, of hazard, but I, I think uh, a time of opportunity.
Well, great. Thank you very much indeed. Um, and it's very, really excellent to see you as a, uh, both you and, and David, uh, of course, as a champion of uh, African interests here. Um, I suppose uh, there's no time for questions and answers. Um, I think we started out uh, talking about the challenges that are out there, the constraints and, and the principles. Uh, we then moved to discuss the, sort of the, the risks uh, that are there for developing countries and opportunities that are out there. Uh, we then discussed about legal issues uh, and, um, uh, and, and sort of on the one hand saying, well, there are some legal challenges there, but on the other hand, some things are really easy. You can just do a signature and that's it. Uh, just make, put a signature on the piece of paper. That's it. And that that's, can safeguard some of the developing country interests. Um, and we ended up with uh, discussions on the, on the African interest in this uh, with a lot of hope on, on both uh, trade and aid. Uh, so that there was interest in both aid and, tra uh, aid and trade uh, for African countries, but of course developing countries more generally. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.